This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. I know you're going to think I'm crazy, but over the course of the last couple of months, I have come to believe that whoever is in charge of putting out news regarding space actually does it to coincide with our bi-weekly slash semi-monthly chats with Dr. Sky, because every week I find myself saying the same thing. My goodness. There is a ton of news that involves space or the sky or aviation or anything involving looking up, anything that's in Dr. Sky's wheelhouse. Thank goodness we're talking with him. Now, maybe it's just me. Maybe this amount of news is coming out every single day, and I just am more attuned to it in the weeks where we get to chat with Dr. Sky. We got new listeners all the time. We have new stations jumping on board our growing network all the time. So... If you are wondering what's all this sky talk, what's all this space talk, you are in for a treat. Because every two weeks for an hour, this program becomes the infinite side of midnight, where we look up in the sky and we wonder. And we look out beyond the stars and we wonder, what if? And the guy that has the answers to a lot of wondering and a lot of the what ifs is Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. He is a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer with a great deal of expertise in astronomy and space. He's also a terrific podcaster. He hosts the Dr. Sky Experience, which you can listen to at redapplepodcastnetwork.com. Steve, it's great to talk to you again. Well, good morning, Frank. Good to be back on our Infinite Side uh, program. And tonight and this morning, I'm actually in another outdoor location here in Sedona, Arizona, breathing in the beauty of the night sky here and uh, we just concluded one of our sky programs so we have lots to talk about and it's always a privilege and honor to be with you and the listeners now the the privilege is is all mine i'm going to give uh, people an opportunity to call in if they have questions at 800-848-9222 at 800-848-9222 but for steve for people that are unfamiliar with your history and your sky programs when you say uh, when you do these sky programs, and that's why you're out uh, traversing the beautiful landscapes of Sedona this evening. What are those sky programs? What do you do exactly? Well, here in Arizona and other parts of the country, we want to try to expand these. We basically go to a lot of resorts, hotels, and actually even in the inner city where, let's say, people are not able to join us at some of these more luxurious locations. So there's something for everyone. We bring out the telescopes, we bring out our multimedia equipment, we put on some video, we'll put on some, we have these incredible powered lasers that are all legal that go upwards into the sky about 20 miles. And we just concluded one. Uh, these are the guests at a beautiful resort here in uh, Sedona. But it's something for everyone, Frank. And, you know, the looks, the the, the exasperation, the, the sounds of young children and people who've, let's say, never seen the moon or looked at Venus or the planets. It's just something that, what do we do? As we say, on John Katsimatidis' program, The Cat's Roundtable, and yours, we would do this to what? Open and expand people's minds on the many things that, you know, we're so immersed in the political world. And for good reason, we have to keep our, you know, our world in a, in a level plane, if we possibly can, on a level plane. 
But it's amazing to do this, and uh, we're so honored to be able to share this with the listeners here, too, in, the, in, the, in this way, in the media. Let me begin with uh, something that is not at all in space, but it is very much in the sky, and something that is going to be very much on the minds of the listeners in the northeast part of the country over the course of the next 24 to 48 hours, and that is the smoke that is apparently yes. making its way down from Canada once again. It's uh, choking out a lot of our listeners later today in the upper parts of the state, and it will be making its way to New York City by Thursday. What do you make of this? Everything we've been told so far tells uh, New Yorkers, for instance, that they should be getting ready for more smoke-filled summer days. How much of a concern do you think this is? And for folks that uh, have been accustomed to this in the western parts of the country, do they look at us sure. New Yorkers who are dealing with this for the basically the first time and say, oh, you guys, you don't know how lucky you've had it? Well, Frank, it's a big concern. And we really don't know why there's the number of these, uh, you know, ex- expansive uh, big wildfires in Canada. I mean, some were saying that they don't have the technology there to fight the fires as we do down here. I don't know if I buy that totally. But the problematic thing here, even in Arizona, I just flew up to Oregon for a program that I did about a month ago. And as we took off and got headed north on with the airline, we saw this amazing plume of smoke that once again came from Canada. You know, obviously serious respiratory problems or, you know, causation here. And we're also experiencing here in Arizona, this is some of the most, you know, tender hot time of the year for Arizona. So I think it should be a concern, but I really don't understand that there's a lot of weather systems that are blocking where these fog, you know, where the smoke would actually go. But the way the weather systems are set up, it just seems to want to stream down from the north. It's a very sad thing. And uh, there's probably no real solution to this. Uh, We don't know if these are man-made fires. We don't know if this is caused by lightning. But you have to know this, folks, that lightning is still the most, uh, you know, the profligate thing of, of starting these particular fires of other than human cause. You know, even people driving with, let's say, a trailer, they warn people not to have the chains on the trailer actually strike the ground if you pull off the road, because mm-hmm. that's another starting uh, element of fires. But I feel for everybody. I mean, we've had it here in Arizona and a good portion of the southwest. Uh, you know, it's just sad. It, and from a very selfish side, it just diminishes your view of the sky. But it gives some great sunrises and sunsets that look more apocalyptic. But that's not a nice thing to say, right? <laughs> that is for sure. Let me ask you about this. Uh, Marco Rubio, who, in addition to being a senator from Florida, serves as the vice chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee. Most people know him as a former Republican presidential candidate. He made some news this week. And he spoke to News Nation on Monday and indicated that there have been serious whistleblowers who have held. Well, this is what he said to News Nation on Monday night. Uh, some are public figures, you know, and, and you've heard from them in the past. Others, um, you know, have, have not shared publicly. And so we're trying to gather as much of that information as we can. But I, and the reason why I'm being cautious, I'm not trying to be evasive, but I am trying to be protective of these people. Some of these people still work in the government. And frankly, a lot of them are very fearful fearful of their jobs, fearful of their clearances, fearful of their career, and, and, and some, frankly, are fearful of harm coming to them. And he goes on and said this. Well, I don't find them either not credible or credible because we have no basis. About, understand some of these claims are things that are beyond sort of the realm of what any of us has ever dealt with. What I think we owe them is just a mature, you know, understand listening and, and trying to put these all these pieces together and just sort of intake the information without any prejudgment or jumping to any conclusions in one direction or another i will say i find most of these people at some point or maybe even currently have held very high clearances and high positions within our government so you start at you do ask yourself like what incentive would so many people with that kind of um qualification these are serious people have to come forward and make something up Steve, give me your take on what we heard from Senator Rubio there. Well, I think he's telling us that he knows more than he's able to tell us. And in those, you know, so-called secret sessions that they go through in the Congress and the Senate, my big concern is why can't we know what really is going on here? I mean, we've talked about this so many times, and I want to sound naive. I'm sure many of the listeners of your program, as you do each morning, you know, throughout the morning and the night, talk about this very subject. But we, the most amazing thing, Frank, to me is this whole whistleblower attorney who then says one of his clients or a client 
had this extreme, you know, amazing experience by having the government, you know, basically find one of these craft and then actually have technicians go inside when they became dizzy and nauseous. And let's say an object 30 feet across, they went inside and it looked the size of a football field. I mean, the senator's right. This is stuff above most people's pay grade. But it all goes back to let, let's get to the truth here. I mean, and that's the understatement of, of, of the show. When are we ever going to be told the truth? And I wonder what's so secret about this. I mean, is, if I were to be told, and many of your listeners, I'm sure, I don't think we'd jump out of our skin. I think many people want to understand this. And from an astronomical perspective, very simply, if we look at the number of stars, as I'm looking at the vast cosmos right here, and maybe people are listening to this particular program, there are so many star systems out there that the numbers, if you just look at it, how many replicant sun types, you know, systems with planetary objects might have habitation? I just don't know what the answer to this is. Somebody's hiding something. And it's not, I don't know if it's in the Defense Department's interest to hide this. I mean, we don't know of any alien invasion, or maybe they know something, of course, that we don't. But I think we should eventually get to the truth. It's going to be very interesting uh, to see where things go. Uh, that's for sure. Right. We have uh, phones already queuing up. We're going to get to the phones in just a minute. 800 848 9222. That's 800-848-9222. There are uh, some real concerns on this planet about our tensions with China. And we think about those tensions generally in terms of trade. We think about it in terms of military aggression, even maybe in terms of COVID. But there's actually some real concern in terms of the moon. What are we hearing about the tensions between the United States and China and what that may mean for the moon? Well, Frank, it goes back a long time ago because China was never a participant in the International Space Station. And they always seem to be so very secretive or suspicious of even working on the same radio frequencies or international cooperation. So if you look at their whole program, both military and space, they obviously have a you know master plan to, I hate the word, dominate the moon, but actually go there and set up bases and some things. And it's not just, in my opinion, for scientific research. I mean, they're looking at it from more of a military standpoint also. But it's very sad. I mean, we've tried and we've opened the door here to try to get cooperation from the People's Republic of China, the Communist Party, and it seems to go nowhere. And it looks like unless there can be some great, you know, tension breaker. I know uh, Secretary of State Blinken has gone over to see President Xi and, you know, talk the talk about trying to cool tensions between the countries. But it's always been in the, you know, in the performance of the Chinese Communist Party and their space program to be very isolationist. They really don't want to talk to us about anything. And uh, that can only be a bad thing. That's my opinion. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see where things go. We'll see. All right. 800-848-9222. Al is calling from Manhattan. Hello, Al. Al, we got you. Good morning, Al. All right. Moving on. Now we got Neil on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Morning, Frank. Good morning, Doctor. How you doing tonight? Good morning. Very good, Neil. Good to be with you. Thank you. Okay. I, I got a, a crazy question. The International Space Station, I know China's not on there. Russia's on there. We're on there. I think Belgium and uh, some other countries are yes. also there. Uh, you know, with what's going on in Russia that we're supplying weapons to Ukraine and, and killing thousands of Russians, what if the Russian cosmonaut goes a little crazy and maybe attacks the American guy and kills them? Whose law applies on the International Space Station? Do, do they go and get the guy and bring it back to the U.S. for trial? Or, or Russian law? I mean, what happens if something like that, if something like that would happen? Well, Neil, I'm not an attorney, but I'll speculate on this. Let's hope that cooler heads prevail. But realistically, this is what I know about this whole thing with the space station and the Russians. They obviously have you know, kind of cooled everything. They're not really happy that that is the government to see us participating with the Americans. But if something like that were to happen, I would imagine that they would be brought back. You know, I don't know if there's any uh, master or sergeant at arms on the space station, but I think that's a whole new conundrum that we have to try to deal with. It's international law. I really don't know the answer to that, but it is interesting. But seemingly right now, things are pretty much on the cooperation side up there, even if tensions politically on the ground are going the other direction. And, and here's probably the real reason, Neil. These astronauts and cosmonauts are very well-trained people, and really, believe it or not, 
I think that their allegiance really, you know, not only because they're nationalists to their own countries, you know, we are Americans and they're Russians. There's seemingly this kind of invisible cooperation that's in space between a lot of astronauts. In other words, if you're in that level of, of you know, high experience, this is something that they pretty much do get along. And I haven't heard any other stories where there's been trouble. But, right, Frank, we'll have to investigate and maybe get a space lawyer to talk about what happens beyond that. Yeah, it, it's a great question. I don't think it's a crazy question at all because we've been no, hearing a, a lot about yeah. uh, the the tensions mm-hmm. that have been going on in this respect. Yeah. Now, uh, one story that has gotten a lot of attention and I'm hoping you can explain it to us in the way that only you can that makes it understandable for people like me, is that humans, the people that reside on this planet, have pumped so much groundwater that the Earth's axis has actually shifted. That's the word according to a new study in the journal Geophysical Research Letters. First, um, what is this groundwater that we're pumping? Doesn't the water go back into wherever we pump it out of? I think that's what a lot of people think. And how much has the Earth actually moved? Well, Frank, it's an interesting story, and here we go. I mean, with all the growth around the world, and by the way, it's mostly in mid-latitudes on the Earth that we're talking about this groundwater evacuation. So if you look at the total amount, astronomers and space scientists and geologists are saying that the Earth has tilted by about 32 degrees on one of its axes between 1993 and 2010. And the reason, we just mentioned it, pumping groundwater out, the estimate is 2,150 gigatons of water have been pumped out of natural reservoirs in the Earth's crust. But again, most of this has happened at mid-latitudes here on the Earth. So the polar shift that we're seeing here, remember, there's two poles that we're really talking about on the Earth. And it's the position of this rotational pole is not identical with the geographic north and south poles. So actually what's happening is, in simplest terms, because of all this water changing the dynamics of how the Earth, when it spins, in other words, it's like if you touch a half a jug of water, let's say, you, you know, even orange juice, let's say you had a half a little jug of orange juice, and you keep sloshing it around, and you put it down on the table really quickly when you agitate it. What's that thing going to do? It's got enough kinetic energy in there that it's going to start pushing against and sliding along the table. Think of that as if the Earth, in a small scale, it goes through this cycle. But to be honest about this, and that's the only way to be from these articles, it says that if you dumped all that groundwater out and put it back into the oceans around the Earth, that the oceans would only rise about six millimeters. Let me repeat that. Not six inches, not six feet, but six millimeters. So we have to have concern about how we're drilling through the earth and seeing what's in there, because a lot of this is not replaceable. But it also goes to another thing that's even more uh, deeply involved, and that is the true wobble of the earth because of what's happening in the earth's dynamo. In other words, internal to the earth, it's like liquid molten metal, and it's sloshing around in there. And sometimes there will be a bubble, and that bubble can actually change the gravity on the surface of the earth. And there's one area along the south, or the right side, I should say, excuse me, of Brazil called the South Atlantic Anomaly, where the gravity changes so much that even spacecraft in orbit see a change as if there's a different tug. And also another area of the Earth that also has that, there are numerous ones. If you went up into Canada around the Hudson Bay area, they say that gravity changes because of the change of what's underneath the Earth. So we have to be cautious of this. Because one day, let's hope not, will the well what may run dry. Now, um, but in terms of the distance that the Earth has actually moved, how much groundwater uh, needs pumping, and then uh, before this this Earth movement becomes a real source of concern, or is there uh, a number that uh, involves Earth movement before it does become a source of concern? I think the answer to your question, it's a little preliminary. I think we're just discovering this now. And look at the time period that they're talking about, 1993 to 2010. What kind of records do we have and were we really looking for this before? And I think if you're talking about 2,150 gigatons of water, I don't know what that means, but it's a heck of a lot of water. The problematic thing here is there has to be some sort of calculation that says, hey, if you pump out this much water over time, It's going to change the Earth's rotation and thus move the pole of the Earth. And remember this, again, one more time to repeat it. It's quite interesting. It's coming mostly from mid-latitudes 
And where is most of the population? Obviously in mid-latitudes on the Earth. The polar regions don't have the kind of population, and certainly the South Pole. So you're looking at where populated areas are, and it's something we all need water. Look at us out here in Arizona. There was just a big Supreme Court case. I forget the exact name of it. It was the Navajo Nation, I guess, versus uh, the government. And they were talking about water rights. And out here in Arizona, we're talking about, you know, a decrease, an incredible decrease in the big reservoirs and lakes that feed the Colorado River. So let's hope that uh, they come up with a solution to the groundwater changes, because even a distance of 31 inches in the change of the poles, that's pretty dramatic in, in a world that's fairly large. That's for sure. All right. We're going to continue with Dr. Sky in a moment. We have one, two, three open lines. If you want to jump on board with a question, we're going to try and take as many questions as we can throughout the course of the hour. This is the infinite side of midnight, 800-848-9222. This is 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYPD. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, joined for the hour by Dr. Sky, Steve Cates. If you're interested in the subjects that we are talking about, you can absolutely check out the Dr. Sky Experience. It's available wherever podcasts are available and uh, by going to redapplepodcastnetwork.com. That's redapplepodcastnetwork.com. Steve, you mentioned you're out there in Arizona. I, uh, yes. I know that it can get hot in Arizona in the, in the summer. How hot is it uh, this, this summer in Arizona, and how does that compare to historical trends? Well, we're experiencing a mild heat wave here. When we talk about a mild heat wave, it was 108 degrees in Phoenix. That's why I basically hightailed it up here to Sedona, being a little selfish here, because the temperature difference between Phoenix and Sedona can be like 25 degrees, and that's a lot. But let's go back in our time capsule. This is interesting, Frank. Back on June 26th of 1990, we had our all-time you know, highest temperature ever recorded in Phoenix, Arizona. And that day, I'll never forget it, because I was flying to Hawaii on America West Airlines that had 747 service. It was unusual for Phoenix. And the pilot, this is like maybe 1 o'clock in the afternoon, he comes on the intercom and he says, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be one of the last flights out of Phoenix. And I'm wondering, well, what the heck? I know it was hot. So he actually went out beyond the outer marker. If you look at runways, you see these like big X's at the end there. And that's kind of an area where... You know, in case an aircraft had to, you know, stop or something like that, it's not to impede the airline traffic. So I wondered why, and I didn't know this. So the airplane gets off the ground, and he said if we had to wait another hour, the aircraft would not have been able to take off because they have a calculation where the weight ratio and stuff, the big 747 couldn't take off. Frank, the temperature that day was 122 degrees, and that's measured in the shade. Wow. 
No, it gets worse. We go to 1994, and I remember being close to there. It's an area in Arizona called Lake Havasu. You know, it's a beautiful place to go in the summer if you're a jet skier, boater, fisher, fisherman, fisherwoman, whatever. They had a temperature in 1994 recorded at 128 degrees Fahrenheit, but it's not the all-time high because we know that, you know, from historical you know, weather records, one of the records states that in Death Valley, Arizona, excuse me, Death Valley, California, the temperature there in the early period of the 20th century, I think it was like the 1915 or 16, temperature was recorded at 134 degrees. But somebody challenged that in the meteorological world and said, well, their instruments weren't right. They didn't do the measurement right. But they also eclipsed that. But one of the highest temperatures ever recorded on Earth was pretty much like that or close to it in Libya. But we're experiencing, for folks who are listening, let's say in Texas or other parts of the country, they're experiencing a very, very deep heat wave right now. And if you're in Houston, Texas, I know they had the temperatures, I think, today 108. But look at the humidity. Because we're going to be going through monsoon season in Arizona. It started officially on June 15th. They say it ends on September the you know, 30th. And I had a friend come by to me who, you know, not his fault or the people that asked me. this. He says, well, Steve, it's uh, June 15th. Where's the monsoon? Well, I said, this doesn't happen like you turn on a light switch. But this is the humidity with the temperature is bad. So 122, Frank, was the highest temperature recorded in Arizona, in Phoenix, Arizona, but isn't that bizarre? The country's experiencing, you know, much deeper heat waves, and it's causing a lot of people with health issues, obviously. Uh, the power grid, I wouldn't want to be paying that electric bill. How many millions of megawatts are we pulling off the grid? And we also know the weakness of the electrical infrastructure in this country. So let's pray for cooler times, but that's why I'm here in Sedona. It's nice, <laughs> and it's about 70 degrees and a beautifully clear sky. And what better place to be than on this program, seriously, as we talk about this infinite side of midnight stuff. Absolutely. All right. A lot of people eager to chat with you. 800-848-9222. Jim is in New Jersey. Hello, Jim. Hi, Frank. Hi, Steve. I want to, I want to, yeah. Uh, this is the 50th anniversary of Skylab. Okay. Yes. And that's one question. The other question is, what, during the Apollo days, the uh, relative speed from the moon changed as it went through the sphere, sphere of influence as relative speed uh, to the Earth when they changed it over. And the distance also changes. Why is that? Well, the moon is slowly moving away from the Earth, and people may not realize this, Jim. The moon moves away a few centimeters, if that, every, every year as it continues to go around the Earth. But let's go back to that historic moment that you talked about. I was a very much a New Jersey person and a New York person at heart. That's where I was born. I'm very proud of it. But back in July of 1977, 78, I remember watching Skylab in the sky, and we did this big event at one of the theaters in Paramus. Frank, you'll love this. We had one of the theaters in Paramus, New Jersey, do this Skylab kind of tribute. And we actually watched the thing go over, wobbling in the sky. But that was most amazing because it was one of the largest pieces of space material, as you know, Jim, to enter the Earth's atmosphere. And the problem with it is most people wondered when and where it would come down. So we actually found out that a giant safe that weighed maybe a ton that was on board Skylab survived reentry. It actually landed on land. Some of it went in the ocean. But God help us if we have to deorbit the big ISS, which is gigantic, like football field size. But they already have a plan for that, Jim. And that is they're going to probably send it down to this ocean graveyard. A lot of people may not know this. There's an area off the coast of Chile and just to the right of Tahiti, which is in the you know, South Pacific, where they would deorbit spacecraft. And many you know, have simply gone <clears throat> excuse me, into that watery grave. Well, that is, that is something. Thank you for the call there, Jim. 800-848-9222. You know, uh, w- one of the things that we've spent a lot of time covering and commenting on, and it's really captivated the attention and the imagination to some extent of the whole country, maybe even the whole world, is what happened with the uh, the Titan 
submersible. And you had, obviously, a bunch of people that are very wealthy pay a lot of money to do something that most people think is very dangerous. Almost immediately, as soon as I started talking about this, a lot of people raise the parallels to space tourism. And a lot of folks are saying that the implosion of this submersible near the Titanic could be a sobering moment for other extreme and possibly risky tourism industries like private human spaceflight. What do you see the, as, the, the effects of the Titan's implosion being on spaceflight, private spaceflight going forward? Well, it's two separate subjects. I mean, we look at the one that went down in the ocean, the Ocean Gate Titan. That's very sad. And as I've mentioned before, this is so, so sad because they didn't have U.S. certification for this particular craft. Mm. And how did they get away with it? They actually dropped it into the ocean in international waters. So the problematic thing here is how many people are saying, well, I'd never go to space because it's not safe. It has a better track record overall. I know many people may disagree with me, but the privatizing of space and space in general, if you've looked at how many launches we've had that were manned over the course of time, you know, albeit a Challenger disaster, albeit Columbia, albeit a Russian rocket that exploded and killed people on the ground. The truth is what happened in inner space. I've said this before with John on you know, the Cats, Cats Roundtable. We've only explored 20 percent of the ocean floor, mm. but we have images of Mars and complete, almost complete, if not 100 percent imaging of the planets like Mars. So inner space is actually such a very strange place for us. And if we talk about the different levels of the ocean, we have three levels of the ocean that are interesting. We have this outer area, okay, which goes from like the surface to 200 meters. Then we have this area called the twilight zone, not the TV show. But this goes from 200 to 1,000 meters. This is where whales live and, and much of the marine life. But we're told that if you were to go into a, a craft, I've never gone down in the ocean like that at all, you know, Apparently, sunlight disappears at around 650 feet below the surface. So beyond that, it's total darkness. And then this midnight zone goes from 1,000 to 4,000 meters. And here's something even more bizarre. People think about the depths of the ocean. Back in January of 1960, a gentleman that I had a real honor to interview was Captain Don Walsh. He went down to the Mariana Trench. Get a load of this. Back in 1960, they went down in something called a bathyscape. And when you translate from Greek, it means the deep vessel. It's this bizarre looking, it's like submarine almost. It's filled with, guess what? For the buoyancy issue, it's filled with gasoline because of the different buoyancy with water. And it has these weights, these little magnets in there that if it ever got stuck down there, it just drops it. And the buoyancy of that tank would automatically rise it. But Frank, they went down to 35,798 feet. And Captain Walsh said when they looked out of that tiny little porthole window, you know, the size of maybe a, you know, a coffee saucer, they actually saw marine life down there in the depths of the ocean. So incredible pressures down there. We're talking 15,000 PSI. But going back to the space, you know, comparison, I really think that the overall space safety has been way better than what they're doing. And it's so sad that those people went down knowing that they were in a craft that it really had no certification. That's super risky and so very sad. It's very sad to hear that story. I mean, I I thought about this a long time before they said it. I mean, common sense. No, abso- absolutely. How you go down in that and not think you're going to come back and be recovered? It's Ab- just so absolutely. Sad. And a lot of the people have raised similar right. concerns about this sort of loophole of dropping yeah. this craft in international waters and being right. uh, being immune from any country's regulations. Mm-hmm. And one of the Absolutely. things people point out with space flight, though, is that Congress has expo- explicitly prohibited the FAA from enacting any mm-hmm. regulations designed to protect the safety of people flying into space. Should yes. um, should the FAA be able to regulate that that kind of thing so that they can make sure that there's some degree of safety for the people going to space? Well, I'm a capitalist at heart. I mean, I don't always like government interference, but I'll have to go on this one, Frank, and agree. We need some sort of you know, systems in which to check this out, because remember, they're fast-tracking every single person who goes up into space. Look at the old-school astronauts, quote, the right stuff. 
look how long it took them to train for missions. So if we're going to go on a Bezos craft or in the future, you know, Elon Musk hasn't done these space tourism flights. He's more interested. And I like his model maybe a little better than Jeff's because we're actually doing something to, you know, do national security with different spacecraft. We're trying to get off the planet, lift heavy payloads into space. But I agree. I think there needs to be some sort of preparation for people to go to space because even William Shatner, as you've had, you know, as on, on the program many times, you know, he went up and thought it was the most amazing experience. But what real training did we have and what training did we need? I think we still need some preparations. And maybe we need to check us check this out a little more than what mm. we're talking about right now. All right. A lot of people eager to chat with you. 800-848-9222. Thomas calling from WCBM in Baltimore. You're on with Dr. Sky. Hi, Dr. Sky. Good morning, Thomas. Yeah, How my son uh, is in astronomy. He's really getting interested in it. And uh, I was thinking about buying him a telescope. Can you give me some yes. uh, enlightenment on buying him a telescope? I have no idea be, about telescopes. I'd be happy to. I always tell people to start off with a pair of binoculars. Why? Because binoculars give you the use of both eyes. You can learn the sky by seeing things in binoculars that maybe are difficult in a telescope. But to answer your question directly, here's the way to go. There's a type of telescope out there called a Dobsonian. Just remember Dobsonian. What are they? They're little reflecting telescopes. They come in a very basic, almost looks like, you know, wood shop in school, a little mount. But why I like them is that, you know, they're relatively inexpensive. You could probably get a nice little Dobsonian, let's say, about a mirror of a six-inch diameter. It weighs a little. It may weigh about 60 pounds or so. But the point is, it's pretty durable. So if you're around kids or adults that, you know, you may drop the whole thing, don't drop the mirror. Dobsonian telescope is really cool. I have a 16-inch model that we can take and put in a little compact car because it breaks down. But when you set that thing up and you see people looking into the night sky, the Dobsonian, by the way, actually was started by a gentleman, Thomas, named, which is uh, John Dobson. And what he used to do in San Francisco, he used to do this. It's very cool. He'd stand on a corner of a certain intersection in San Francisco at night, and he'd just stand out there with this little telescope that he developed little simple thing. And people just walking by were so amazed that you could see the moon or the planet. So I would look at a Dobsonian telescope. They're available everywhere. And uh, they kind of last a long time because you don't have to worry about really dropping the thing. Just don't, just don't crack the mirror or cover the mirror up. And I think you'll have a lot of fun or that person will. Thank, thank you, Thomas. 800-848-9222. Hey, speaking of breaking out the binoculars or the telescope, what can people see with either in the coming days, weeks, months that they should uh, keep an eye out for? Well, Frank, I'm sitting here looking at the moon. It's gibbous right now, meaning it's just past first quarter and not quite full. We get the next spectacular full moon coming up on July the 2nd. Actually, it's super full by the morning of the 3rd by around 7.59 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time. So the night of the second, you'll see the buck moon. And what this is, this is the first of a series, Frank, of supermoons. Remember, supermoon is not an astronomy term. It really came from astrology, but here it is. A supermoon is when the moon is closest to the Earth and it coincides with the full phase by maybe hours. So what you're going to see on the morning of the, or the evening of the second into the morning of the third is a moon that's quite spectacular. It'll look a little bit larger and probably a lot brighter. And you'll notice the difference if you had a small telescope or binoculars. But here we go. In August, we have actually two full moons. And some say that the second full moon of a calendar month can sometimes be called a blue moon. So we'll have an August moon, the first of the two, called the full super sturgeon moon, named after that great fish that comes out of the Great Lakes. And then we'll have something even more bizarre at the end of August, the super blue moon, if you'd like to call it. And then it ends with the last of the super moons for 2023 on the 29th of September with the most romantic moon of all called the full super harvest moon. But other things, if I'm turning around here, it's set. Venus and Mars, Frank, are very close in the northwest. So if you look out in the sky just after sunset on these beautiful late June nights, You'll see that brilliant object. That's Venus. Just look a few degrees to the upper left. That's Mars. So the love affair between Mars and, and, and the Venus is going to happen on July 1st. They'll be only about three degrees apart. It's a beautiful way to start the month of July. And there's so many spacecraft to see. The Chinese Tiangong Station, 
the ISS, the Hubble Space Telescope. And I always tell people to go to heavens-above.com. You can be the superstar in your neighborhood. Let's say you're having a cookout and you say, hey, right over there above that barbecue grill, the space station's going to come up in five minutes. And people will go, really? And then you know what? <laughs> if it's clear... <laughs> You'll be like you have magical power. That would be that's something. Cool. That's uh, that's pretty good <laughs> advice. All right. We're going to continue with your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. This is the infinite side of midnight with the one and only Dr. Sky, Steve Cates. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is the infinite side of midnight as we talk with Dr. Sky, Steve Cates, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster, also the host of the Dr. Sky Experience podcast. Get it wherever podcasts are available. Just search the Dr. Sky Experience or go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com, also a frequent contributor to the Cats Roundtable on Sunday mornings. Steve, the um, James Webb Space Telescope continues to produce just incredible images of galactic wonders. And apparently one of the things that we got to look at, courtesy of the James Webb Space Telescope, is the largest galactic structure yet discovered. What was it or what is it? Well, Frank, if you look out in the cosmos, you know, the Milky Way galaxy is home to a few other galaxies, the Andromeda galaxy. There's a number of them called the local group. And then you get out into these bigger groups of galaxies, and astronomers are always searching for the biggest of all these clusters. So what we find out, there's something called the Laniakea Galactic. It's like this big, giant, massive swarm. We're in it. But astronomers have found something that's even more bizarre. The largest galaxy yet discovered, Frank, in the universe is called the Alcyoneus Radio Galaxy. This was actually not detected by James Webb, but it was actually detected by a massive radio telescope followed up by images from James Webb. It's 100 times larger than our Milky Way galaxy. Now, what does that mean? This particular galaxy, if you looked at it, is actually 3 billion light years away. That's far, right? Because remember, the universe, 13.77 billion years ago, the whole shebang apparently expanded. I like that better than exploded. But here's the story on this. This galaxy alone is 16 million light years wide. Now, I'm sitting under this starry sky. Maybe some listeners are out looking too in the sky. And we can take a telescope and I can point it up to a galaxy. Let's say I'll pick one. I can look at the Andromeda galaxy right now. Two and a half million light years away. Frank, this galaxy is 16 million light years Mm, wide. Amazing. That's incredible. That's totally off the charts. So we continue to explore, open people's minds, and the universe just what? It keeps on giving, and it doesn't seem to ever end. It's just so fascinating. It's great to talk about. This. All right. Al in Manhattan, who got disconnected before, has uh, called back. Hello there, Al. Good morning, Mr. Morano, Dr. Sky. I had a Carrington event. I apologize for that. <laughs> um, can I ask you this? Good morning, uh, Al. As far as the, uh, yes. the ISS, did they ever resolve the uh, drill, uh, precision drilling that they found in the interior going out to the exterior? You know, there were rumors that maybe it was one of our adversaries. Did they by any chance? No, they haven't. And you bring up a very good point, Al. That's one of the great mysteries on the ISS. You know, if they could have a mystery, you know, TV or, you know, documentary on that. What it was, the backstory on it is one of the uh, astronauts on board noticed that in one of the modules, there happened to be this hole, a puncture. It looks like something. But what did they have on board to do it? They don't have handguns up there. You would have heard a blast. So that's really one of the strangest things. Is it an act of sabotage that somebody did? But also, now, this is the the common sense explanation to this. Somebody said that that might not have been detected, and it actually happened when it was on the ground, 
and then it was up in space, one of the reentry modules. So we don't know. So maybe lucky for those cosmonauts or people who rode it up to space that it didn't puncture and, you know, the entire craft become disabled. But you're right. Nobody ever really came up with that. They don't tell us. May I ask also, did you have experience of Aurora Borealis? Or, absolutely. Um, yes. Yes. You, you have. You have. And have you been to oh, Big Ben by any chance? Have oh, I was there? I didn't hear you. Have you ever been to Big Ben National Park? Big oh, no. Ben. I've experienced it right from the skies of New York City, the skies of New Jersey. Really? I was just talking about this the other day. Back in April, okay. the Aurora Borealis were seen all the way down to Florida. So stay tuned, folks. And now, because the Solar Cycle 25 is generating more flares. And if we get these geostorms, they, they rate them like G1 through G5. The one in April, people were waking up out, you know, or waking up in the morning, I should say, and looking in the sky, and they thought there was a giant forest fire over the horizon, but it's the auroras. And it's something that you can see on occasion, but here's the best way to see it. You need dark skies. You need a time when hopefully the moon is not out. That doesn't mean the auroras don't show up. But from cities like New York or big cities across the country, like Chicago, Phoenix, even in Phoenix, I've seen them. But you were where? You were in Big Bend. Uh, you said you saw that. No, I was saying I, I was. I've been to uh, Montana. Oh, Montana. Yes. Well, there. But the Big higher Bend, the latitude asking, you are. But but I'm saying Big Bend. They say is the best place in the whole country for a dark sky. Is that is that true? Not necessarily true. I I would still Al, I would still say the best sky that I think we can look at across America is deep in the deserts of Nevada. That happens to be, of course, what the Area 51 area is, just the north of that, between Area 51 and Ely, Nevada. Those are some of the darkest skies still in the entire country. And it's quite amazing because the bottom line is, yes, you can see auroras. So get set as Solar Cycle 25 continues, the chances will get better and better. And it's a beautiful sight. Steve, Al was sort of joking around uh, that uh, when his phone got disconnected earlier that he experienced a uh, a Carrington event. Give us a reminder (laughs) of... Yeah, no, I know. That's the uh, perils of mobile phones. Give us a reminder (laughs) of what uh, Carrington events are and uh, take us back through time to the Carrington solar storm of 1859. Why was that such a big deal? Well, September 1st, 1859, this Carrington observer, this last name person, you know, his last name, Carrington, he was observing the sun every day with a telescope, and he would map the sun safely, like the disk of the sun, he would draw the sunspots. And lo and behold, right in front of Richard Carrington's eyes, he sees this gigantic, brilliant area on the sun from this humongous sunspot that was on the sun. And if you compare the size of that sunspot to sunspots of solar cycles, you know, after that, this was just momentous. So what happened? Immediately when that flare took off, it takes eight minutes for light to reach the surface of the Earth from the sun. So that flare effect just shot across space in eight minutes. But the residual effect of that, which is called the coronal mass ejection, hit the Earth about 15 hours later. The entire, what Al was talking about, about the aurora borealis, the entire northern part of the Earth and probably the southern all the way to the equator experienced days of brilliant red auroras. It was so powerful that it actually affected, as we talk about the, uh, you know, Victorian Internet, the telegraph. People who were using the telegraph got shocked, and some of the wires even caught fire. But that pales by comparison to something now that astronomers and astrophysicists are talking about. People should look up the Mayaki solar storms. What's that? Allegedly in 759 A.D. or thereabouts, a massive solar storm, maybe 20 times more powerful than Carrington, took off and blasted off the sun. So the point is, Carrington today, if it hit the same power as far as the flare and as far as the CME, I hate to say it, we're like toast in our electronic technology world because back then we didn't have that. But the Mayaki event, if we had a repeat of that, but they say the sun runs in thousands of year cycles and maybe even tens of thousands of years of cycles. So let's hope and pray that solar cycle 25 is... Nothing like those things, but you never can tell because the sun belches out flares all the time. It's just an amazing thing that that star is so incredible. And it uses so much fuel, Frank. I mean, think about this. Its fusion ball is converting like, say, 780 million tons of hydrogen every second into like 750 million tons of helium. And it's been burning without giving us a bill, per se, 
for four billion years, and it's supposed to do the same. I like what I hear like that. I hope it keeps going. Yeah, same here. We're going to try and squeeze in at least one or two more calls here before the hour ex- is expired. 800-848-9222. Janet is in Manhattan. Hello, Janet. Oh, hi. Thank you. Hi, Dr. Scott. I have a question Good about uh, yes. the gas hi. planets. Is that what we call them, gas or gaseous? Yes, um, that's correct. Yeah, Right. Jupiter, they're all the outer planets, aren't they? Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, yes. and Neptune, and I guess Pluto, yes. before it was demoted, was probably, right. and probably is still gaseous, right? So what is the reason for that? It can't be a coincidence that they're all the outer planets and the, let's say, inner planets are all rocky. That's one question. Right. And the second one is, when we, I'm trying to get a picture of what this looks like. When we say it's a gaseous planet, suppose I get in my spaceship and I fly up to Jupiter. Is there a place for my spaceship to land and for me to get out and walk around? Is there any, you know, rocky, well, solid place there, or is it all just gas? Well, good questions. Let's go back to the first part of your question about the planets. Okay. Yes, you're right. The, the gas planets are Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. Pluto is mm-hmm. too rocky. It never, never was gaseous. But the interesting thing is, why is it that way? Here's what the simple answer mm-hmm. is, at least from astronomy. When the solar nebula formed, all mm-hmm. that material that spun in the inner ring, which is what, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, and the asteroid belt, there was probably a planet there that you know, was disrupted by a bigger planet hitting it. Those planets coalesced into the rocky planets that we have. But the outer planets, they remain far enough from the sun that they were originally these big gas balls, even like the Earth. So all those gaseous planets that are out there, because of their distance and the temperature, that's why they remain gaseous. And they're massive objects that some of them, like Jupiter, wish it was becoming a star. But it would have to be about 80 times more massive for Jupiter to turn into a sun. But going back to the other part of your question, if you were to take a spaceship and, let's say, go to Jupiter, there is no place that you could land on that ball of Jupiter because it's just an amazing mix of methane, ammonia, and other high, you know, hydrocarbons that are spinning. But there is a deep core of Jupiter, they believe, which is actually a solid metal core, maybe in the center, like the Earth has, or maybe a molten core. But no, Janet, you couldn't land there. And the problematic thing, too, is the radiation is so intense, none of us would be able to survive an encounter with the god Zeus, Jupiter. It's so big, so massive. Let me squeeze in one last question here. Roberta is on Staten Island. Very quickly, Roberta. Oh, I just want to mention, I'm concerned about what's going to happen when they build all these wind farms. I know it's an ocean question, but I see these dolphins off the coast of Atlantic City every year, and it's a whole family, and I'm wondering what's going to happen to them, all these whales that are having all these problems. And I just want to know what the doctor thinks about Well, Roberta, wind farms can be good, but I don't think they're any replacement for other technologies. But if they do interfere with the environment, with the beautiful whales that are out in the ocean, I think that would be a problem. A lot of people complain that wind farms are ugly, and they also say that they do a lot of damage to birds because if you've ever seen some of these big windmills, you know, wind farms, they're massive and the blades are gigantic. But that's pretty much it. But Frank, it's always an honor to be here on this particular radio station talking live from Sedona, Arizona. Let's do it in two weeks and have a nice 4th of July, everyone. Thank you, my friend. Likewise. And we got to get you to do one of those sky events in the Northeast so uh, so I can go. All right. Um, in the meantime, keep your feet on the ground, but keep reaching for the stars.